Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. What's the song? Song? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I had one earlier, too. I, I, I am speaking. I, I, I am speaking. Very nice. That was <laughs> very, very nice. I had a different one in my head earlier and then it like left. So that one was just off the cuff. Can you believe that? Yeah, I, <laughs> we should put out a poll on our next episode. Can you believe that Kosha made that song up? <laughs> All right, listeners, today you get the lovely treat of hearing Kosha and I talk to none other than our own brother, Triu Baxi, MD. He is the only one in our family carrying on the family name. Because he's the only boy and we all changed our last names yes. but we all have bakshi in our middle names in our middle names yes yes so it's not totally different very early when we did our bakshi siblings conversation early in the first season this we're almost talking a year ago now that he re- he went into discussions about toxic masculinity and having three older sisters strong independent vocal uh, opinionated older sisters and how that changed or or molded who he was as he grew as he grew up a, a man. Yeah, it was really awesome to hear his perspective on what it was like to have three older sisters, and not that we were like trying trying to make an impression, but your siblings do make an impression. Um, and what I really loved the most about that conversation was hearing how his ability to be in touch with his softer emotions helped him be better as a physician. Like I was, I never even really thought about it, but to hear him discuss it and explain it in a way that you're like, oh, this is really, really important um, for physicians who are trying to encourage their patients or connect with their patients or support their patients. So that was really cool. And the other thing that makes me smile um, is he talks about um, someone who's very important to him. It is not me. It is not you. It is not our little sister and it is not his wife. So there is a a person who's very, very close to try you that um, just, I get tickled pink about, about when, when, you know, they talk about their friendship. So I won't give it away, but uh, it's very scrubs worthy right yeah yes yeah. <laughs> that's a very good analogy that's yes. a very good comparison to what his friendship is like 
So enjoy, enjoy our little brother. He is smart. He is funny. He's a pain. He's our last episode of 2021. He is. Oh, he is our last episode of 2021. Just like he is the last child of our family. We did not do that on purpose. Um, But enjoy Dr. Trayubakshi. He is speaking. Hi, my name is Dr. Chirayu Bakshi, and I am speaking. Hi. Welcome, Chirayu. So this is going to be an interesting on-ramp to this conversation, um, because as you may know from our very first episode, Dr. Chirayu Bakshi is our younger brother. So we don't know him as Dr. Chirayu Bakshi. We know him as Chirayu, or various other nicknames that Kosha is very good at giving. <laughs> I'm very good at giving nicknames. So I will try very hard to make sure I call you try you during this because I don't call you that very often. Yeah, I'm not sure if your mouth remembers how to make those sounds in that order. Yeah, exactly. Also, Dr. Bakshi growing up for us was, was our, our dad. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about our dad, nor are we here to talk about particular stories about our dad and Trayu, although that may come up. But we are here to talk about our brother's, Trayu's experience growing up as a Indian boy, young man in the South suburbs of Chicago and sort of navigating the two worlds that he was in, the American culture, the Western culture and the Indian culture, having, you know, what was like being a young man, having three older sisters, um, and then just what's it like being, you know, a young guy navigating the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s world of masculinity. There's a lot to cover. So, Chirayu, I'm going to let you start wherever you want to, right? Obviously, I can pick a spot that's like, I remember when you were born, uh, but I don't want to start there. Um, I don't have much to say for the first couple of years, so... Right. <laughs> Tell us your, like, tell us the on-ramp to your story. Like, where would you like to begin? You know, it's, it's really interesting because I've, I've been, when you guys t- asked me to come on and you told me what the, the general topic would be, I'm thinking like, like my experience is obviously unique. So obviously, it, you know, not everyone has my experience, but I think everyone has elements of this. And I think it starts early. You know, my, fir- my earliest memories when we lived in central Illinois in Streeter. I remember I, one of my best friend lived across the street and he had two younger sisters. And I remember one time I, you know, went over to his house and I had a sleepover and there was, you know, toys and stuff in the basement and we were playing whatever. And they were like some action figures and dolls. And, you know, obviously the whole thing with boy, boy toys and girl toys and things like that. And I remember like, n- be just being like, oh, hey, what kind of toys do you have? And he said, oh, those aren't for us. Those aren't boy toys. To me, it was really foreign because I was like, but I mean, toys are toys, right? Like, who, who cares? I grew up in a space where like you play with whatever you want because you're not going to have a ton of toys. You're not going to have to pick like whatever you get is what you get. You play with this thing or you play with nothing. Yeah, right. Or or like you use your imagination. Good luck. 
and it, it was my first introduction to the idea of gender roles. And I think that's probably the, the earliest that most people, whether they know it or not, are introduced to this idea of, of, of this such stark division between what is male and what is female, what is masculine and feminine, um, and what's appropriate or quote unquote appropriate for a boy or a girl to do. And I remember, you know, there was a, a point at which I was getting really bored by playing with GI Joes or anything like that. I was, I was never big into, into, into like trucks and like, I like hot wheel cars and stuff. I remember that, you know, it wasn't like, you know, Oh, I have to like this because I'm a boy. I just had an interest in them. I thought they were fun and cool. And, you know, I could also see the value in like a, a Barbie or any sort of doll. Like, I mean, you know, you guys know that cabbage patch dolls were a big deal. When, when you guys were when you guys were growing up and you know they were a fad but I never thought of it as like oh that's not a toy for me you know and um I just always thought it was like okay well I'm not particularly interested in that toy so I'm not going to play with it but not because someone tells me I can't so I, and I think that's that's like the earliest seeds of something like toxic masculinity where someone tells you what is boy like and what is girl like and as a male you're you're basically you know, kind of indoctrinated in this whole, like, this is what boys do, you know, and it, 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 it plants the seeds for what is, you know, it, it goes on to the whole, like, men don't cry and you don't, you don't express your emotions and you're supposed to be cold and distant. You're supposed to be, you know, like a stoic, you're a piece of stone and you're supposed to weather all the storms and you're not allowed to think about anything in terms of emotional emotional terms and you have to think about it cold and calculating and being the best being the strongest versus you know what is right for you as a person what is right for you and your your mental health your physical health your social health I think that's where my earliest memory of of being exposed to that was and I think that's a good place to start because you know we also grew up in a fairly conservative rural town so there wasn't a lot of other outlets and other sources of, I don't want to call it like dissent, but you know, like a, a differing opinion and differing way to look at how boys and girls, young men and young women, adult men and women interact and how, like what roles they take on in, in the home. And I, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I, I contrast that with my current status. You know, I'm married. And my wife is very, very adamant. She's like, I'm not playing gender roles. I'm not playing house here. Like, we're not going to sit here and be like, I'm the woman, so I do this. You're the man, so you do this. She's like, I want you to learn to make dinner. I'm going to have to do the laundry sometimes. You're going to have to do the laundry sometimes. I, I want you to be able to do everything that I do. And vice versa. She's like, she may not necessarily want to take out the trash, but sometimes I have to be like, hey, you got to take the trash out sometimes because I'm not going to get stuck with all the stinky jobs just because I'm a man. Right. I'm not I'm not going to be the one to clean the toilet out every time. You know, there's a balancing act between like doing what you have to do because you're a man or a woman versus saying, like, I'm going to take on this role because it either needs to be done or has to be done, not because I'm a man or a woman. Obviously, it gets more complicated than boy toys and girl toys. But, you know, it, it's a theme that carries on throughout, you know, through school, high school, college you know, jobs, whatever. And having the experience myself of going through residency, going through medical school and residency, you know, even it, it carries on into, you know, what's a boy specialty versus a girl specialty. 
obstetrics and gynecology are always and forever and pediatrics to a degree as well will always and forever i think unfortunately be known as a girl specialty a female only or female dominated specialty versus something like orthopedic surgery i was going to say that orthopedics yeah. and i mean surgery in general but orthopedics especially is extremely extremely male dominated and you know like it, it goes with the classic like i don't know if anybody's watched the tv show scrubs that's listening to this but you know they they make fun of this quite a bit and they you know they they put a big sign that says like hey this is kind of ridiculous one thing that they do a very good job of showing whether it's fair or unfair is that they they paint orthopedics as the jocks and it's all guys all guys right and then because they're always like working out and they're like you know they're they have you have to be pretty strong to do orthopedics i'm not going to lie like you you need to have strength to be able to like get the torque required to like drill into bone and you're doing construction. Yeah. It, it's like, it's like, it's human carpentry. You use things called like slap hammers. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Like there's drills and there's screws and there's plates and nails and what have you. It's literally, they call it hardware. So like it, it makes sense that like men are going to be more drawn to that, you know, because one, maybe they enjoy that more than women are going to enjoy drilling in or hitting, you know, with a hammer or drilling with a drill. I don't know. Well, and I would say this actually loops back around really well to going back to girl toys and boy toys, which mm -hmm. is boys. What else are boys given? They're given work, play workbenches, and boys are typically taken under their wing from their, you know, dads or uncles or whomever to be like, come work on the car, come help me build this thing. Um, you know, I need help mulching the yard or whatever it is, you know, even sort of family structures and social family structures can reinforce this fact that like certain things are for boys. And if you grow up being familiar with hardware and construction, you may be more, uh, you may be more drawn to that in a medical specialty versus girls are typically not asked to come and put together, you know, a set help rebuild a set of stairs for example so maybe over time it's like you know it's hard to tell which how much of that early this is for girls and this is for boys you know maybe then it's the difference at four or three is two degrees but if you take it straight out it becomes a huge difference over time yeah i, I look back on my experience because i did a little bit of uh, medical school training and stuff for an elective in india and the whole script is flipped, right? Men dominate almost all aspects of medicine, really, except for a few spots. And it, it is changing now. But even like all the all the OB guys, they all used to be men. You know, there there is a certain point at which women would much rather go to a woman than a man for female health. But I also think that you know there's also a stigma around it for men. You know, go, oh, I don't want to go to a man. I don't want to go to a man for this. You know, he, how could he understand? Well, there's also, and we can talk about this at the end, but there's also some historical sexism that happens in, in many fields, but that's not where, that's not what we are here to talk about. We're not here to talk about sexism in medicine. We are here to <laughs> well, talk yeah. about, uh, you know, to the extent that you've experienced some of that, absolutely. Um, but, you know, you started by talking about your first memory of this sort of like enforcement of gender roles. Did you ever experience any of that in school? 
we lived in Street there until you were about seven years old. So that would have been six, 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 six when we moved. Yeah. So through preschool and kindergarten, but into first grade, in first grade, we had moved to the South suburbs. Is that the right timing? Yeah. So the, the summer, the summer of when I turned six, so it was a few months after I turned six. So you started first grade in the suburbs. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So did you experience in your, it was it were any times that you experienced similar things or even to the more overt enforcement of gender roles, not just like, Oh, those are girl toys, but like, that's girly of you. Or like with, with sports, like when you started playing football as like a tiny kid, was that because mm-hmm. you wanted to play football or was that, you know, like, where did some of those things come from? Uh, you know, what I will say is that I don't think uh, in Streeter, I don't think I, I don't think I experienced a ton of that sort of like that's girly or that's, that's not, that's not boy enough. You know, I don't know what the boy is enough, boyish enough. There you go. I don't think I experienced, or at least I don't remember much of that. I mean, my social interaction with a bunch of other kids was fairly limited, um, but I do remember, you know, some of kindergarten playing with boys and girls didn't, I don't remember there being much division or much enforcement of gender roles at that time. But I do think that like, at least when we got to the suburbs, there was very much a like, okay, the boys play with the boys and the girls play with the girls. And there wasn't a whole lot of like mixed gender activities um so you know whenever they would send us out for recess the boys would play football or kickball or something like that um and the girls would i don't know play hopscotch or jump rope or just walk around because they were bored i don't really know what girls did right they wanted to play kickball probably yeah yeah and the thing is we never i mean i i guess i never really thought about it but not like we ever offered we didn't ever say hey you girls want to play like I don't even remember one time ask like playing football or kickball or anything with the girls because usually they didn't want to. Um, or so I thought, you know, it I might be a hundred percent wrong, but I never really thought about it that way. You know, it kind of continued up through up through middle school and into high school, but by that time there was a pretty clear division of men's and, and women's or boys and girls sports. So from that perspective, there wasn't much. I mean, from the gender roles perspective, I was actually pretty fortunate that, you know, I, I did a lot of, I did drumline when I was in high school and you, you would think that something like drumline was very male dominated. It actually is not. Um, we had quite a few women on the drumline and we uh, relied, uh, I mean, my first, my freshman year when I joined drumline, we had two drum captains. There was a male and a female. They were both fantastic at, w- at what they did, and they were both accomplished, you know, musicians. Um, and I just remember, like, not ever thinking anything about, you know, this is for boys or this is not for girls or whatever. How about within the drum line? Was it like, oh, men do those big drums or the snare, and the girls are the color guard or the, you know, like, was there a separation within the drum line? Well, drumline, not so much. Obviously, color guard was all women. Um, and I remember, you know, if you ever talk to our other sister, Spruha, who did color guard, she can tell you that, you know, that the big, I don't know what the word is, I guess, I don't know if it's a controversy, but um, one of the big things was when she was a junior, I believe, and going into her senior year, the color guard instructor or 
you know, the head of the color guard was a gay man. And there was very much a point at which I, I'm sure, you know, being immature high school kids, everyone was like, you know, he's a, a gay dude. But, you know, at least within the, the drum line, there was a point I, I, I never saw. I mean, there was never a point, I should say, where I thought that men or boys can only do this and girls can only do that. We had, again, the, the drum captains that we had, the female was of the lead snare. And then um, the, you know, we had the quad drums, which were like the tenor drums. Um, and then the, the, the male was the, the male captain was the, the tenor drum leader. Then for my, my sophomore year, there were two males, but we had, you know, I think two or three really good um, snare drum players who were, who were female. And they were freshmen and sophomores. It's not like there was a seniority component to it either. I became the drum captain of our drum line in junior and senior year. And two, I think two out of five, or actually three out of five of our bass drums, which are the big ones that you have to face sideways so you don't hit anybody, two or th only two of them were male. Those are three like of the, them are all women. The dole, right? Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> like, the, like the big, with like the big mallets, the bass yeah. drums. And three of them were women. So it's, it's definitely not something where I've ever thought that it's four men only or not, you know, it's not a boys club, at least not at my high school. It wasn't, I'm sure it's like that at other places. We lived in a fairly diverse and liberal, you know, um, suburb. So that could, that could be part of it, but we're talking about your experience and your experience wasn't like, oh, only men play that drum. Right. Was there ever any whispering though, either, and, and I, picking this up from listening from last season where we talked to a lot of people who are involved in theater and chorus and you know in the musical more artistic side of things that there's a lot more flexibility with people doing things that are typically of the opposite gender where it's like oh you're a good musician that's what we care about you you're great on this bass drum and that's the most important thing here or you're great with the choreography and that's why you're the lead and it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl or you know how you identify. We need people who can do the right things at the right times. But in the larger student body, was there any, do you remember hearing any hints or seeing any incidents where someone was being called out for or being talked about for not being aligned with the role properly like oh that boy's something something right so in high in in the 90s with it the popular um way to take someone down if you're especially if you're a guy take someone down the peg and insinuate that they weren't being manly enough was to call them gay right right did you hear a lot of that not a ton not a ton i i mean i i i don't even think it had anything to do with gender roles it really just was used as a derogatory name towards people. And again, stupid high school kids, they're gonna be stupid high school kids. And that is just pervasive throughout time. But uh, I don't remember anything specifically. So uh, I don't, I can't really speak to it myself. I mean, I, I always tried to surround myself with people that were not either bigoted or you know toxic or anything like that. Um, and. I, I had a pretty diverse group of friends as well. I mean, there's looking back, I'm sure there were people who were, you know, were very obviously gay or whatever, uh, or fluid or non-binary or what have you. And that, you know, we not knowing any better, probably unknowingly were 
showed some sort of toxic masculinity or toxic gender role enforcement without even knowing it. But there's nothing that I can say definitely like, oh, I remember this big incident. I think it was probably more more insidious. It's probably a little bit more. Um, it was much more subtle than like some big sort of like, oh, I remember this time that this person called this person this and said, you can't do that because you're a man or a boy or, you know, you're not a girl. Why are you doing that? Well, and a lot of times, you know, what we, what we find, what has been found is that people won't even step outside because they are afraid of being ostracized or being called names. So they really do try to color within the line, so to say, even though they might want do something different. Um, I think, so one bit of departure here or one interesting point for us to talk about gender roles and how specifically you approach something um, that does give a lot of people pause is when you started dating your first girlfriend and sort of what your approach to dating her was like in contrast to maybe some of your peers or, or the flip side of that, the other you know thing if it's relevant, is how did your approach to dating her, how was that informed by having three older sisters? I mean, a lot of what was expressed to me through just, I mean, growing up as the youngest of four and being the only boy was that, I mean, I think everybody, everybody who has had a sister always is told probably like, treat treat whoever you're with with respect obviously and you know what that respect means probably is different from person to person but you know at at that age you're kind of learning how how relationships work like you're learning how you interact with somebody of the other sex that you're 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 more personal with you're you share more you're more intimate with that person on multiple different levels not just like oh you know i kissed a girl but also socially how do you interact with other people in a group when that significant other person of the opposite gender is next to you in addition to that you know there is a there's also a component of I, it's, it's hard to say like it, it's hard for me to kind of compare because there's actually a, multiple different factors that go into it including you know like one age you know we were the same age we were both the same year but like she was from a white family and that suburban family and we were Indian and we had a much different upbringing. She had spent her entire life in Orland Park and we did not. She has one older brother and I had three older sisters and, you know, both being the youngest, but having different experiences of how you, not only how you treat somebody of the opposite gender, but how you are treated. Um, So, you know, having an older brother, obviously there's going to be a lot more like pushing and you know like fighting and your older brother messing with you and stuff like that versus having older sisters where there's a lot more talking (laughs) i will say there's a lot more discussion uh because i think i again whether this feeds into actual gender roles and masculinity versus femininity or whatever what have you i think there is still a fundamental way in which men and women you know resolve not only address conflict but also resolve it I always felt that, you know, I, I would always want to keep talking about something. And that's just because that's how I was raised to deal with things. And that's not to say that she felt like she needed to, you know, not talk about things, but her upbringing, again, they probably didn't talk as much as we did as a family to work through issues. Um, 
And as you guys can both attest to, our family is nothing if not talkative. Yeah, Shailish and I started a whole podcast based on the fact that we talk a lot. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you know, and I'm, you know, nobody talks as much as we talk. Nobody processes as much as we process. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it, it's, it's similar, actually, to something that Greg said, you know, that he is just more chatty and he wants to be more verbal about working, processing through problems more than his partner. It's not gendered how much you want to talk and how much you want to process and how much you need to communicate. But the fact that we think about it as gendered is the thing that I think we should be focusing on here is it's not like boys and girls can talk and we all know people, men who talk a lot and women who talk a lot and we know the opposite of both. But the fact that we think about the fact that, well, Trey wanted to talk more and your girlfriend didn't. And so that was a gender flop or gender flip, I should say. Uh, that's the interesting point here is that we think about it as gendered. Yeah. And, you know, it, again, she came from a, a white suburban, you know, Christian faith background family, and they were all fairly, they're wasps, um, so to speak. And so I was, I, I it, it felt a little weird to me because I remember having dinner at their house one time and no one talked very much like they would ask me questions here and there but it was mostly just about eating dinner i'm like is it so quiet around here all the time like you know i'm used to coming home and dad talking about work and asking us how our days were you know it even like just comparing it to you know the model for my first male female relationship model was our parents obviously and mom and dad talked constantly you know, it, mom is a social butterfly. So, you know, she is always, you know, ready to talk, but dad is not a quiet stoic, you know, like stone, you know, he will talk to people. He, he loves being social as well. And his main way of, of conflict resolution is talking, you know, I, I, outside of, you know, being a surgeon, obviously you can't just talk your way through surgery. You have to actually do it. Um, but there's not a lot of problems that I had seen growing up between our parents that talking wasn't, if not the only step, the critical step, because you have to, you have to be able to communicate through that stuff. And it's something that, you know, even now, like, I think I talk a lot. And then, you know, my wife, my partner will always say like, why didn't you tell me this? You have to communicate this stuff with me. And I will get to a point where I'm just like, I'm not used to being told I don't talk enough you know? <laughs> yeah, that would be a real change. Um, given that, you know, all your previous relationships had, you're probably more talkative than anyone they had ever dated before or after. Um, and certainly in our family, the whole, you know, if you, if you wanted to in- engage with anyone, it was always through conversation, conversation at the dinner table, con- what these long drives up and back, you know, when we were in Streeter, these long drives to the suburbs. Um, you know, it was like, what are you going to do? Are you going to talk to each other? And when we, particularly on our trips to India, I was like, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, there were no iPads and stuff at the time, right? So, right. Yeah. You're going to play some cards, you're going to read some books, but mostly you're going to sit around and talk. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're sitting on 15, 16 hour plane rides to India, what are you going to do? You can only you can only watch the same movie five times on DVD. We did. Shulshi and I didn't even have DVDs that you know yeah. when we were. But I would just say like 
Hooks. Now I know. Hooks yeah. and Walkmans. 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 Yeah. Now I know why our mom is slightly crazy is that she had four kids on 16 hour plane rides with no iPads or anything. Who would not shut up? <laughs> yeah. Probably. Oh my it's gosh. Our fault. We're so totally. sorry, mom. So now you're through high school, but I want to switch to college. And I know that you and the person who is like your very best friend in the whole world went to the same college. But talk a little bit your how about about your relationship, where you met, and how your relationship grew, and then sort of what it was like in college. Yeah, so you know we met actually in fourth grade, and we had gone just uh, all the way through you know elementary school and middle school, junior high, and then he went to a different high school. He went to a Catholic high school for when I went to the public school. Did you remain friends? Yeah, yeah, we did, but we obviously didn't have as much opportunity to hang out with each other or talk. Facebook and texting wasn't a thing back then, so. Yeah, right. There, there weren't many opportunities besides, like, call them up and be like, hey, what's going on, man? You know, like, call the landline. Um, way back in the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, before cell phones were everywhere. And so it, through high school, we didn't really talk much. Like, we, we kind of reconnected every so often because he doesn't live too far away. Like, he, his parents' house is not too far away from our parents' old house where we grew up. You know, it was never like a constant, hey, what are you doing this weekend? You know, let's let's hang out this time. We didn't make a ton of plans at that point. And so we really didn't reconnect until sophomore year of college at Loyola, where he actually transferred from a different college. We kind of fell back into step in terms of being really good friends. And actually like, we just were even better friends over time and you know he's definitely my best friend now but one of the one of the more interesting things I think in in terms of this conversation about toxic masculinity because I've been talking about this is the way that men interact with men and one of the memorable moments and I've told this story to both Kosha and Shailashi and everyone was um you know he was dating a girl from back at his old college and he one weekend drove home to see, or drove back to, sorry, he drove to see her uh, one weekend. And then he called me up later that night and said, I'm on my way back home. She broke up with me. So he left on a Friday and I was going to see him until the next Monday or Tuesday or something. So I said, okay, see you later. And then he, came, he showed up the next, a couple hours later and said, she broke up with me. So I, I went over to come hang out with him, you know, share a beer or something like that and just kind of commiserate. And he was doing his laundry. And I remember he, he probably didn't really know how to start a conversation. He, I could tell that he really wanted to, but he didn't know how to start a conversation. So I'm standing there as he's folding his laundry and he says, are you going to fold the laundry or what? And I'm like, okay, I didn't come over here to fold laundry. I'm like, I obviously, you know, you're hurting here. And, but, you know, I, I, it's one of like, it was kind of like the moment where we like knew that we were best friends because I'm just like, okay, I guess I'm going to be the one folding your jeans and your boxers and stuff because like we've known each other for like 10 years at this point and we're not going anywhere. <laughs> and so, you know, and then it kind of just kind of led into him just being able to talk, talk through and express his emotions and, he didn't have an outlet until that moment. And that's not something I think a lot of men are comfortable doing. I, I think that's, that's what probably the, 
the crystallizing moment where I'm just like, yeah, I don't think a lot of people are comfortable doing that, even with their best friends, even with people who know them for quality and quantity in terms of like longevity. Um, you know, you can know somebody for 25 years and only, you know, don't even know what their favorite color is. Or you can know somebody for a few years and, you know, know pretty much everything about them. And whether they're your, their male, female, best friend, whatever, partner, doesn't matter. Like, I don't think there's anything inherently masculine or feminine about being there for someone. And that is something that I think is very different from the way most people think about male-male relationships is that you don't, you don't talk about that stuff. You suffer in silence and you're not, you you know, you're going to make someone else uncomfortable by being open and being vulnerable and being able to express your emotions. And that, again, I, I, I'm always going to bring everything back to the fact that I grew up with three sisters, uh, an emotionally in, in touch mother, obviously she's, you know, our mother is a very emotional, Sometimes too emotion in touch. forward. Yeah. Emotion, emotion forward. I will say that's, um, emotion driven person. Amazing way of putting it. Emotion forward, emotion forward, emotion driven person and a father who, you know, he is, a, he's more analytical, but he he's a little bit more like logical logic focused, but he's also not afraid to cry. He's not afraid to show his emotions. And that is, that is something that I will always look back on and say, yeah, my basis for what a real man is, is somebody who is, is not a stone. You know, that person is not, is not completely cold towards what other people need. And I think that also, I mean, I think that also helps me as a doctor because so much of what we do is empathy. So much of how effective we are is how empathetic we can be to help our patients. And that's something I've taken forward as well. So I I actually think toxic masculinity is just something that I've always, unconsciously or consciously, I've always known is just like not, is not productive towards having a healthy relationship with anybody. Um, And it it, it really crystallized for me when, when I had that, you know, I had that encounter with, with my best friend. And even to this day, like, you know, we, we joke about having truth or dare, you know, nights where we were playing with friends and we, we never shied away from like, another, Ooh, you get kiss your best friend. We're just like, whatever, man, we're, we're down to, to win the game here. We're not, <laughs> we're not in it to come off as macho men, you know? So it was very much a, uh, never in my, in my mind that it's not, it's not manly or something to be, to be vulnerable with people that you love and love you and that you care about, Uh, you know, whether that again, it's your partner or it's your best friend or, or family. Here again, this where I think culture plays a big role. You know, I think, um, well, for our listeners who have not been to India and maybe aren't as familiar with, you know, Indian culture, affection between men is very common in India. And that is not indicative of same-sex interest. It's not uncommon in India to see two men walking down the street holding hands. Um, or, you know, people like having arms around each other or men hugging or you know, maybe kissing on the cheek a little bit. 
holding pinkies or whatever it is, right? That there's a lot of physical touch that men in India and other cultures likely, you know, can think about um, Western European cultures that are very comfortable with men touching each other without it being um, some sort of indication of, of, you know, homoeroticism. Kissing men on both cheeks when you meet them for the first time. Right. So how much do you think that played into it too? Which is you're like, but I've already seen this. I've seen it play out where like you can be physically affectionate or emotionally vulnerable with another guy without it being some sort of threat to myself or to someone else. Sorry, specifically, what what, what is your question? I, I, I didn't understand. Well, what the so your was. relationship with Vince and you've talked about it as being both very emotionally deep and you're willing to be vulnerable and you're willing to talk about things that are tough um, with him, but also of comfort with physical engagement in a way that isn't like, oh, well, those are nice pants, but uh, I'm not gay, right? There's actually a whole thread on Twitter, I think, which is like, people say stuff like, uh, I really like what you're doing and you're a really cool guy. That's a really cool haircut, but no homo. Like somehow you men always need to put that disclaimer on there, which is like, I can't tell you that you're a good looking guy without also then saying, but I'm not gay. Yeah. So that's my question there. It's like, you have a relationship with Vince that doesn't have any of those echoes on it. How much of our culture do you think affects that? That's interesting. I never really thought about it in those terms, but I think there's uh, there's definitely some aspect of it where like when I first saw it, I was just like, okay, that's different, but it's not like weird. It's not for me to say what's right and wrong in this culture. You know, I, I didn't think that I passed any judgment on that for sure. Just like if, you know, if someone else comes to me and tells me that my relationship, I'm doing it wrong, so to speak, I would say like, well, I don't really care what you think, right? I, I never really thought anyone thought about how I ran my relationships because it's not it's not between you and them and someone else. It's just between you and that other person. And, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying with the whole like no homo thing. And I, you know, I think that's that just comes from insecurity and or caring too much about what, what other people think. I do think that there has been a shift, at least in the last few years, like of like, you know, men being able to hug, you know, like Ben being able to, you know, be there for each other, shows emotional support without being like, you know, treated as like, oh, you know, it's obviously something more than that. It's more intimate. Like, no, I don't, I don't see that. And I don't think that it, it, it hasn't really influenced how I, how I see those relationships, seeing it in America versus India. You know, there was a stark difference in terms of how open men in India are, how much they like, you know, they don't even think about it in the same way we do, obviously. But I do think there is a very significant number of people who would would look at that, you know, being from being from India or being from America going there and saying, wow, this is very different. How many of these people are actually gay, you know? Like, it's just a matter of how normalized being physically affectionate or just physical touches with someone of the same gender. And I think that we very much here in America, you know, 
some parts, some places don't care and other parts care a lot. Um, they go hand in hand, right? Especially for men. No pun intended. <laughs> they go hand in hand. Like if you, if you hold hands with a man, you must be gay. But females aren't like that. Like I can, I can link hands with Jen or hold her hand or give her hugs and kisses and stuff. And no one's like, eh, you're gay. Like that just doesn't happen with females. Um, I've, I wanted to bring up, you had, I know your favorite show is Scrubs and you have brought it up earlier. And um, there is a famous romance, right? In, in that show with uh, JD, the main character and Turk. Um, and they're also very unapologetic about their relationship and, and the, they love each other. They hug, they're, they're each other's life partners in a lot of ways. We just talked to Dawn, who is Shailushi's life partner, really. And interestingly, we talked to a couple of polyamorous people last season. And one of the, the themes that came out of those two conversations with the, the polyamory was that, you know, you don't have to look to just one person, your partner, your, your romantic partner, as the answer to everything that you need as a human person, that you need a uh, best friend, a therapist, uh, uh, you know, whatever. All, all of these aspects that we need in our lives, we don't have to just look f- from our spouse. And I, I'm just drawing this parallel between you and Vince and JD and Turk. And they were teased a little bit. It was kind of a butt of a joke a couple of times, but really they came to being quite like this is who we are and we love each other and you know at one point he I know he goes um I love you more than Turk and she's like oh my god like that's such a big deal how much of how much of you and Vince do you see in that kind of like romantic way or that like he is actually one of your partners right like that that he provides something in your life that's like beyond just like having this friend and what kind of like have you had to deal with any jokes or um people insinuating anything between or about you guys even if it's like a joke jokes have that kind of like where people are like well i'm just joking don't be an edge to them yeah yeah Yeah. can you talk a little Um, bit about that so I, I do want to talk about, I, I know you reference Scrubs and it, it's funny that you mentioned them because it, especially in this context, the actors that play them, Donald Faison and Zach Braff, they also have a podcast. Um, it's fake, fake doctors, real friends. And they are very much exactly the same relationship. Also hashtag not sponsored by them, but wish we were. Right. Yeah. But uh, you know, if we got a shout out, that'd be yeah, great. Um, <laughs> or I'd love to be a guest if anyone's <laughs> listening. And they're, they're also unapologetic about their relationship on their podcast too. They are very much the same. And I listen to them regularly as well. And they, they are very much, you know what? Like he's my best friend. I've known him forever. And they're both, I mean, Donald Faison's married and has kids. Uh, Zach Braff is dating Florence Pugh. Like, it's not like, you know, they're looking for something else. It's just like, like you said with Shayla Sheen and Don, they're life partners. Vince and I will be friends and, until one of us is dead. You know, we're, we're, we'll find each other in the afterlife and hang out and, and go to Cubs games in the sky. You know, there, there is obviously something that you can share with someone that's known you for that long that you may not always feel comfortable even sometimes sharing with your partner. 
there there's things that they understand about you that uh, being of the same of, of the same gender having similar experiences to you having a different uh, seeing a different side of you unconsciously or consciously that your partner may not understand or may not be able to offer the same perspective to you when i was getting married my you know my wife would say you know then fiance would say like well why don't you just go do something with vince why don't you just go out and do something for your bachelor party and i was like well i don't really know what to do that's not really my thing i'm not the big like party person i'm not gonna go to a strip club or something like that like what am i gonna do he was very much like don't worry i'll take care of it and he had this whole thing planned off (laughs) he's like this this is our activity together right um this um, is what we do. Th- th- this is this is what we do. <laughs> what else is yeah? Like why why are you acting so weird? This is this is our thing. Um yeah, Friday nights doing laundry in, um, tearing up the town. Um and you know, like it, it that it's like that's a very like surface example, but it's like again, it's something that like you wouldn't trust your spouse to handle for you. Yeah. But your best friend, someone that knows you, knows what you like, knows what you want knows what you're going to enjoy and have fun with and feel special. Like that's something that in that way, that's something that like only a best friend, only, only a life partner in that way would, would know. Right. Like if, if Shayla, she, you know, I know she famously goes to like girls weekends with her best friend, her friend group, but she makes time just, just with Don. She, mm-hmm. she says, I'm going to go a, a day or two early. Um, if if it, it means I, and even if that means I only get to spend time with Don. Um, you know, I will, I will very much say like, Hey, you know, Vince and I are going to go to the Loyola basketball game and we'll talk to you ladies later. You know, he and his girlfriend and my wife will just be like, all right, we'll see you in a couple hours. Right. Like, you know, there's not much else for them to do. They're not going to, they're not interested in doing, going to the game, but you know, that's, it's very much like a, you know, an understanding between us that it's, it's, it's our thing. You know, going to a Cubs game, you know, hopefully, you know, when pandemic gets better and the Cubs are not terrible, you know, we oh, both of go and see a game. Both of have to happen together? Well, <laughs> I, at least one of them has to happen. <laughs> yeah, there you I, go. Meaning okay. the pandemic, yeah. yeah but um, <laughs> What's also amazing and awesome here, though, is that stereotypically men don't talk about their feelings with other men and their wives, girlfriends, and sometimes sisters become their emotional support people, right? Um, and women almost expect that. And then if there's an opportunity to break that, some women can get very unsettled by the idea of not being their partner's, their male partner's sole source, right? Of, of emotional support. We're not here to talk about his girlfriend or your wife uh, specifically, but it's also a testament to them to how they're like, this is the relationship that I need to become comfortable with if I'm going to enter into a romantic relationship with this person, because this this guy is such a big part of my partner's life. And I know that if I said him or me, it would be him, right? If, If that had happened early in his relationship, you know, if she had said, well, it's either try you or me, he would have been like, I think it's try you actually. And I can imagine a situation with other girlfriends who have said, well, it's your best friend or me. I need all of your attention. 
um, that it would have been a very easy decision for you to say, no, actually my best friend comes before a person I've just started dating. Yeah. There, there's the door. I'll see you later. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I mean, again, you know, I, I will, I won't speak to too many specifics, but certainly with my wife, she actually understands quite a bit. You know, she has her own best friends that she's going to turn to, you know, her, her emotional support person is, you know, her mother or her best friends. And there are certain times where she'll say, even to me, she'll say, listen, this is something that, you know, do you feel comfortable talking to Vince? Do you want to call him and talk to him? She will say like, I may not really be, have much to give you in this way. You know, I I'll offer my support for, you know, my empathy for you, my sympathy for you when you're struggling with something, but you know, it, it may not be something that I can help you with. And she'll, she has said to me before, do you feel comfortable talking to Vince about this? Do you want, do you want to ask him? And you know, there, there's also certainly times where he's come to me and said, like, I just really need someone to talk to you about this. I don't really know who else to turn to. I'm not sure, you know, this person will know or that person, this, you know, I don't, I don't, can't recall a time where he even said anything about his girlfriend, but I know there's definitely been times where, you know, he's been like, I, I just don't know who else to talk to about this. Yeah. So, you know, there's definitely been times where I have, have needed his counsel and, you know, my wife would say like, you should probably talk to him actually. Like, you know, I obviously, you know, my, my support system is mostly her, but you know, she also realizes that there's limitations to what she knows and what she can help with. And same for me, you know, she'll ask me something. And I'm like, I really don't have the tools necessary to help you. Maybe you should call your friends. Maybe you should call your mom because as much as I would love to help, I don't think I, I, all I can offer is an ear, but I, I don't have the tools to be able to help you. And that's just so much more normalized with women. Yeah. You know, like call your girlfriends, call your girlfriends, like, and even to a point where it's like, you know, stereotypically I'd say, but like, I don't want to listen to this. Can you call your girlfriends? You know? And, um, with men, it just doesn't, it's not as normal. It's not as normalized. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm hoping that it's starting that way our husband, Shayla, she, your husband and my husband, they, they have a, a shorthand. They have a, a way of talking to each other that to me sounds like just, you're just grunting and saying yes or whatever, but like they actually understand each other and actually are really comfortable with talking. And, um, I think that's becoming more normal, you know, but I, I, I mean, I hope. Well, and I think one thing that cannot be overstated about having someone deeply involved with you as a friend for that long. Well, there are two things really, is that one is that they understand the context which that you're coming to it in, right? If you were to talk to your wife about something that happened 15 years ago that feels like it's recurrent, you got to go back and explain the whole thing. Whereas your best friend has been there. You already talked about it and you talked about it again. And then you talked about it three years later. And then, you know, every step of the way where it's like, oh my God, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. And not only the whole story, but the emotional weight that certain parts of the story carry. That's one thing, which I think cannot be replicated by a partner, no matter what. I mean, and there's a reason why siblings are even more that way, which is because they have known you since you know, depending on your age, since the moment you're born or since the moment they could remember, 
they can also carry all that stuff forward that you don't have to explain. The other thing, and this is what I found, and I imagine this is probably true of you. I know it's course it's been true of you and your best friend is your best friend carries the stuff that is too hard for you to carry yourself. That stuff has happened to you and you can't hold on to it because you need to move forward with your life, right? And your best friend says, no, no, I'll hold on to this, but I will remind you that it's here when you've forgotten and you need to remember. I had a conversation with Dawn just the other day and she's like, I'm so strung out and this and that. She was really, really mad. And so I was just like, okay, what do you, first of all, what do you need from me, right? Just to vent, okay. She's like, oh, it sounds like this person in my family. And I said, or it sounds like this person. And she goes, oh, oh, balloon deflated. Oh, now I realize why this one super small, teeny tiny thing was making me feel like I needed to punch a hole through the wall is because it was triggering something. You're not keeping all that stuff together. It's too painful for you to hold all of that stuff. Right, so I imagine you had moments like that with him too, which is like, oh, remember this time that this person did this thing? That's why you might be upset about this thing over here that don't seem to be connected. Yeah, and uh, I, I will say, you know, I think I told them at one point, I'm like, you know, I'm always gonna be here for you no matter what but also you know you know that like i'm also going to tell you what i think what i think is best for you because i care about you and um i i also think that that is something um that it goes i mean we're talking about toxic masculinity here today that's not something that you see in a toxic masculine person um, or masculinely toxic. I don't know the, the way to say it is, but you know, it toxically masculine, toxically masculine. I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but basically someone who is toxic. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Um, yeah. Whose masculinity is toxic. Um, there you go. yeah, it is basically a point where like, you know, you don't want, oh, oh, that's his business. You know, like it's not, not my job to care, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, my job is to be with him and have a beer and go to a game with him and, you know, watch football and blah, 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 whatever. And certainly, you know, he, there have been moments where he's told me, all right, you just need to get over it now. You know, um, you know, and he'll, he'll tell me what, he'll tell me what I need to hear, whether I want to hear it or not and vice versa. You know, when, when he was going through whatever struggles he was going through with a partner, he definitely needed to hear me say, listen, I don't think this is healthy for you. Ultimately, the, the decision is up to you and I'll be there for you no matter what. But I'm going to tell you if I think this is bad for you, whether or not you want to hear it. You know, and I, I do think that that is something that you won't see in someone who is not secure enough to open up to even the person they consider their best friend. I think that's a very, that's a, that's a key indicator of not only sharing the good stuff, but also being able to, Shine a spotlight on on the parts of parts of you or the other person that is not so great, and of course you know. And the the key thing is you know you're still comfortable doing that. Uh, you're still comfortable being with that person and having that person in your life. So you know there's very much a uh, an obvious sort of like you know it, it, I think it's a key indicator of of how toxically masculine masculine you are. I want to pivot here a little bit, unless I don't want to cut off any discussion about this, but I, I want to pivot and I want to go back to scrubs and 
a little bit, I mean, even take a step back and talk about how your understanding and checking of toxic, toxic masculinity affects your practice of medicine and the kind of patients you see, right? So for our listeners, if you're not familiar, men's inability to share their feelings or emotions to make deep connections outside of their spouses has all kinds of negative health effects. Men die more, you know, off they die at younger ages than women. And basically there's research that shows that um, when a man's partner dies, particularly if they're older, he dies within a year. Um, that women end up being both the social hubs, but also the health hubs. They're the ones who are saying, you need to go get this checked out or making the appointments or things like that. But they're all tied to toxic masculinity, both not being able to express feelings deeply, but also ignoring things that hurt, which is a sign, which is another part of toxic masculinity, being stoic, right? And not expressing any kind of pain, emotional or physical. Yeah, suffering in silence. And also not, not taking medicine. Right, and Lance Armstrong is a great example of how that goes completely off the rails, which is he didn't go from one day being like, huh, that's weird, to having stage four cancer overnight. He ignored a problem that he saw developing for years, at least a year, I don't know how aggressive it was, but for quite some time, and then found himself on death's doorstep, right? So talk a little bit how that, checking yourself and the seeing it in, you know, and being more in touch with your emotions allows you to be a better doctor. And it's the practice of, of your medical specialty, but also how that affects how you interact with men who are in that headspace. Yeah. So it, the, the area that I live in, or I, I, sorry, the area that I work in is um, it tends to be mostly African-American and Latino. A, a lot of their social structure and their relationship structure, I feel, is based off of very traditional conservative male-female. I mean, we see a lot of older population, obviously, and there's quite a few uh, men who will say, you know, there, there are some men who will say, well, uh, I don't deal with any of that. I just let my, my wife handle this. And I said, well, she's not the one who's in the hospital bed. You are. You got to take responsibility for yourself. You know, she can't force you to take your pills. She can't force you to go to the doctor. You got to take responsibility for it because you're the one in the hospital bed right now. You're the one with the heart problem. You're the one with the, you're the smoker. You're the one who's, you know, has these problems. And, you know, I, I have to tell people that very often when they're just like, oh, you know, I'm not sure what pills I take. My wife just gives them to me in the morning. I said, you can't do that. I'm sorry. That's, you know, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You got to You got to know exactly what you're taking. If you have to write them down on a piece of paper and put it in your wallet, doesn't matter, but you got to know, you got to be able to find out right away, you know, or, or, or if there's a question about, you know, Hey, you need to see this doctor, or do you have this, you know, what's your medical, even something simple, what's your medical history? I don't know. Uh, I think I had some heart issue you know, a couple years ago, you should ask my wife. I'm like, well, she, one, she's not here, so I can't ask her. But two, like, this is your life, right? It, there's very much, like she, she was saying, they're the health hubs, uh, uh, not only social, but health hubs in that, you know, women are expected to coordinate everything about their husbands or partners' lives. 
And, you know, they have to be the ones that are on task. They're the ones that keep the schedule, the calendar, the, you know, the appointment logs, the, the medical, medical logs are the ones that put the pills into the pill boxes every morning or every week. And, you know, it's very, it's funny because, you know, just speaking to my, my relationship with my own partner, my wife, she, she always tells me, well, what about this? What about that? She's always asking me questions medically. And I said, and I always tell her, you also have to learn yourself. I can't be the one to tell you because you need to be able to put it in context in your own head. I can't tell you what you need to know. You only, you know what you need to know. I can help you and give you as much information as I can, but I can't be the one. I can only show you the door or describe the door to you. You gotta, you gotta build it and walk through it. Um, and it's very, it's very, very common in, in the population that I work for where it's, you know, it's not manly to care about that stuff. It's not manly to open up about that stuff where, you know, I, when, what's the most common reason that people come to the hospital or the ER pain. It's very hard for me to get a straight answer out of a man sometimes where I will say, how much pain are you in? Ah, a little bit. I'm like, well, on a scale of one to 10, 10 is someone's ripping your leg off right in front of you, you know, without any anesthesia. What are you at? One, eight. I'm like, how can you be at an eight and say, it's not that bad? You know, are, are, are you, are you being honest with me? Are you being honest with yourself or are you hiding the truth in order to sound more manly? This might be something you can't even answer, but how about any emotional aspect? Like you've had, I mean, as a hospitalist, you've had to give some tough answers and results and have some tough conversations. And we talked to your, our cousin, your cousin also, Sheetal, and, you know, just talking about things like end of life or like, ah, oh, the scan doesn't look so great. Do you have to have this conversation about like, are you scared? Is there, you know, like men will also be like, try to just hold it together. Right. Like, or stereotypically, mm-hmm. what about those kind of that conversation about, about fear about their health? Yeah. A lot of it comes with time and experience. Cause you just have to feel it out. I even get it wrong sometimes still, right? Like you can never be totally sure how someone's going to react. Um, what I will say is, you know, it, sometimes stereotypes are true. More often than not, women are a lot more emotional when you give them bad news and men are more stoic. And I, I do feel like they feel like they have to keep it together for family, for their wives, for their, you know, for their family members, because they don't want to seem weak. They don't want, they, they want to show portray strength at all times versus, you know, like, I, again, just as an example, I, I had a, I had a patient, female patient who we saw findings that were 99% sure it was cancer. And the moment I told her she broke down and her husband was sitting at the bedside and he's like, okay, thanks doc. Got it. And you know, he, he would ask a couple of questions, but mostly he was like, we're just focusing on her right now, you know? And I said, like, do you have any questions, sir? You know, is there anything I else I can try to answer for you or get answers for you for this? And he said, no, she'll tell me if she needs anything. I said, well, okay. And she, she was not in a state where she could like really communicate very much with me, but I, I made sure to come back the next day and say, listen, 
what do you need from me? And it, it, it's a very, very stark dichotomy because there, there is times where you'll go into someone's room and they'll ask you 20 questions, 20,000 questions. And you'll, you'll say like, you'll just have to try to stay patient and be like, okay, you know, like I, I'll give you as many answers as I can, but very rarely are those patients men, men just, they'll have their breakdown privately or not at all. And they'll internalize all of it versus, you know, a female patient who is not afraid to cry in front of you is not afraid to be vulnerable and sad and understandably devastated. You know, I, I, when I have a male patient where I'm telling him, okay, I think there's a strong chance that this is bad news. Like it's really bad, strong chance that it's cancer, strong chance that, you know, like you're not going to make it out of this. Um, you know, it's a risky, risky surgery that we need to do. It's, it's, you know, you may not come off the ventilator, especially with COVID, you know, we have to have that conversation a lot now in the last two years. The, the men, 99% of the time will say, okay, I've, I can only remember one or two patients really in the last couple of years where I would talk to them and say, hey, this is bad. You know, we're going to do whatever we can for you, but I can't promise you anything. And they will immediately show their emotions. I, I had just as an example, um, as an anecdote, I had, I had one man early COVID. This is you know, April, April 2020, when it was a war zone across the country, across the world. And he's, he broke down in front of me saying, how bad is it, doc? You know, I got to know. I'm like, we're going to do our best. But if you deteriorate, there's really nothing I can do. And we'll do our best. But the stats don't look good. And he said, I don't want to be another statistic. And he started crying. And his wife was three beds away in the same unit, also with COVID, and she survived and he didn't. And it's one of the few times where I, and it's ingrained in my mind because it, it doesn't happen very often. It, it, it's, it's, you know, it's finding a four, four leaf clover or $20 on the ground, you know, when you exactly when you need it, it's just like, how can you forget that moment? Um, but the, the vast majority of people where I say, you know, I don't, I, I, it's not looking good, you know, or it's probably going to be something like can It's usually like a cancer diagnosis. And I, I have to tell them 99% of the time men will say, they'll, they'll give me this. Okay. Thanks doc. And then that's it. They, then they clam up. Right? For those of you who are listening, all he did was not. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. They, they'll nod or they'll kind of give you like a, They'll, they'll take like a deep breath and okay, you know, and then that's it. No follow-up questions. I'll ask, you know, you have any questions or anything else to answer for you? Nope. I got it. Thanks doc. And they, they don't want to show that, that vulnerability even to their doctors because they've been trained that that's not, that's not how men deal with problems. And I want to just point out here that when in these situations, whether it's bad news for them or bad news for their partners, the emotional load goes on to their partner. That she either has to be responsible for her own health care, and, and while she's going through it, you know, I'm thinking about just you referenced earlier that you know the wife got a cancer diagnosis, a highly likely to be a cancer diagnosis, and the husband was just like, no, she'll tell me what she needs. Once again, puts the emotional load bearing onto his wife, 
even though she's the one going right. through the health scare. The flip side of that is, you know, a dude that's in, you know, in so much pain or is experiencing major health crisis, the caretaking on that also goes back onto his wife. And so women in these relationships have to do twice as much work. And in either case, as we, we know from, you know, as you said earlier, try that our mom is very emotion forward. Well, she can be sometimes so emotion forward that the idea of pain and hurt to her husband or her children makes her unable to manage her own pain. And so it makes it very difficult in those situations when you're talking about something that's difficult for you to then find support in the other person because they're going through their own trauma, right? And so you're going through trauma and then you have to deal with the other person's trauma. And that's an incredible burden for women yeah. to bear with their husbands who refuse to express their emotions and talk about how they're feeling, which is, I have my own feelings about this, but now I got to shove those aside because you need me to take care of you. It just goes to show how toxic masculinity hurts everybody, right? Like it's not just yes. the toxically masculine person or that, or the women who are getting catcalled on the street that it, it just lives in this toxic space that hurts every single person that's and it's it's like you said it's not just there it's everywhere it it it's it's not so it's not a big neon sign saying this is toxic masculinity it's it's a lot more insidious and subtle than that and it 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 pervades a lot of a, a lot of our lives and more than we're uh than we than we realize yeah and you know Shilshi, you mentioned that the the caregiver uh or the the part if the male is the caregiver pushing that burden back onto the patient or the person that needs care um you know it, it's actually something that i i actively think about because when my partner needs me emotionally or physically you know like assistance with something the first thing i think of is how can i help because I, I'm so aware of that. I see it so much. And it's, you know, a lot of people would think like, oh, I wonder how often that happens. It happens 99% of the time. Like it is, it is very common to have men who rely on their wives for everything um, or are unable to lend assistance in the way that their, their female partners need um, because it is known as a very feminine trait to care and you know just to i'm going to transition a little bit because i'm going to talk about like healthcare roles there's a reason that nurses are like it's got to be 99.9 percent .9 women um is because the, the the caregiver role is it's actually not doctors it's nurses 100 percent the nurturing caring Wiping the butt, making sure, talking to the patient. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, I, I am not going to sugarcoat it and all and say that doctors, we don't spend even a, like a, a hundredth of the time with patients that nurses do. That's that's a hundred percent of their day. Well, 99% because they got a chart too, which I know I'm sure they love, <laughs> but 99% of their day is patient focused, patient 
in front of the patient time. They're, they're making a big push, at least where I work, for the doctors to round with the nurses because they know. And they're all women. They're, they're all women. Um, I, well, that's what we're, we're actually having a friend of yours on um, who's a uh, man. Yeah, he, a male as nurse. A nurse. Yeah. And so, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Is a male nurse. And so I, you know, because that is different, that is bucking gender stereotypes and gender norms. Yeah, you know, and he's, he's, uh, he's a really nice guy. He's pretty soft-spoken, but he's, he's a big, tall black dude. And he's a male nurse. And, you know, he's, I mean, if, if you saw him on the street, you wouldn't know he's so soft-spoken. You'd be like, that's a, that's a big, tall black dude, right? Like, <laughs> you, you, and you would fall into the stereotype of assuming what, what he's like. You know, you would never assume that this guy is a nurse. And he's one of the nicest nurses I've ever met. Um, and it's, it's really, really, really interesting because, again, he's surrounded by women all day. Um, but he's obviously, like, you know, he's very... I, I would think my assumption is he's very secure in his, his manliness, his masculine, his masculinity. And, you know, um, it, it's, it's very interesting because we were talking about male and female, you know, dominated specialties within medicine and surgery. Um, you know, I, I have never seen a male CNA, for example, um, a nursing assistant. I will tell you my friend, Alan, from high from college was a CNA. Uh, that's what I mean. He got a CNA certificate, and did, that's what he did to make money in college. Um, his aspiration was to go on to med school, but like, I think uh, that's what he did. So he's probably you know he's one of the few people I think who and he didn't do his career, which I think is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a stepping stone for him um, versus you know nurses you know some of them go on to np and stuff like that um but very rarely do you see a male nurse and it's it's in a profession that is not only not only historically but even currently still seen as a women's profession you know like i'm sure he's had his fair share and you know when you talk to him i'm sure he can tell you better obviously than i can about how I'm sure people think less of less of him, less of a man if they know that he is he is a nurse. Um, and to which I would say, try doing his job for a day and you will see just how, quote unquote, strong you have to be to get through that. You know, it's not easy turning patients, lifting patients, moving stuff around, you know, like well, nurses sometimes have to fight. people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. You, you deal with people who are, you know, hallucinating or delusional dementia patients who are aggressive. Right. Or they're like, want to get up and they're just like ripping their stuff out. Right. Mental illness, a hundred percent. So it's, uh, it's not the sweet, you know, I'm going to pat your forehead with the wet cloth yeah. and take your temperature. You know, they're for, I imagine that much of what they do, nurses in general, much of what they do is like, here's your pills and how are you feeling and blah, 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 and take mm-hmm. your temperature. But then there's a big part of what they, you know, a not insignificantly small part of what they do, which is like very physical and, and not just like lifting, like lifting and pulling people off the ground and, you know, kinds of things like that, but then dealing with people who are aggressive and uh, fighting you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. And so. doctors typically don't get into that fray. No. <laughs> No, we don't. Uh, absolutely. Because, 
you know, like I said, they, they are in front of the patient 99% of their day. There's something to how much that they have to go through where you're just like, how could anybody doubt, you know, how, not only the strength, but how could anybody assign a gender to that? How could anybody say you're not allowed to do that because you're a boy or you're a girl versus saying like, I couldn't do it. I don't know how you do. And just to say like, we need good people like you doing what you do. And I wish there were more people or more of you to do that thing. You know, it's, it's, it's just the trap of toxic masculinity to, to assume that he's less of a man because he's a nurse because he does something that is traditionally assigned a role that's assigned or a job that's assigned to women. I think what you just said is a really great way to end this interview, right? Which is if you saw what somebody did on a day-to-day basis, or if you saw who they really were, why would you think that anything would be male or female, right? That only certain traits could be male or only certain traits could be female. You know, one of the themes that we heard a lot in the last season when we talked to people who are on the gender and sexuality spectra were like, the most important thing is that you gotta, you gotta find yourself in yourself and just be who you are, right? And live your truth. When I think about but think about you and your relationship with Vince and how you've brought your understanding of being emotionally present, both for your family and your partner, also for your patients, um, how, that, how that makes you a better doctor, but how it is really just an expression of your truth in a way that I think so many people, and this is what we talked about, so many people repress their truth because they are afraid that they will get shunned for that. But what a better world we would live in. And I say this absolutely, I want to, on this season, it's 100% pounding the table on this. If everyone could live their truth unapologetically and without being afraid, we would live in such a better world where people could really be who they wanted to be and didn't have to repress or suppress any parts of themselves. I'm going to go to our penultimate question. You know, if you could go back and give some words of wisdom to yourself, or if my son, your nephew came to you and said, I got this best friend and, you know, people are giving me a hard time about how close we are. What would you say? What words of it, you know, what advice would you offer? I would say to that or to myself or anyone else that would come to me and say, that person doesn't know you, only you know you, and that person doesn't know your best friend or your partner or that person that you are close to. And they're not gonna know better than you what you need for yourself. Um, Only you know what you need. Um, And you you shouldn't let anybody dictate to you what you need for your life. It's true though. It's like, it's, you know, my first thing is well, like, I'm going to let me know the name of this kid who's making fun of you. Like, <laughs> I'll go talk to him. But you know what, what I love over and over again, and, and you have just proven this again, is that the advice is about putting yourself first. How do I p- put myself first and try to discard the noise? And I think you, you did that beautifully. Yeah. Thanks, Trey. 
uh we end every episode um and have from moment one is uh talking about familect which is essentially dialect within your family right like family varieties of words and phrases we know that we have some in our family you being our brother so our kind of like you know nuclear family from when we were growing up but we'd love to hear some of you know and and family is is a loosely defined word right so we really we could talk about found family your squad any small intimate group can you give a few examples of uh family act in your life that if i walked into the room i'd be like what are you talking about the one that comes to mind immediately, there, there's a, there's a phrase. I went, I went to medical school in the Caribbean to St. George's University. Um, it's on the island of Grenada, and a lot of people tended tend to treat when they're on the island as like basically a, another planet, another an, another lifetime basically. And so when when there's a lot of stuff that happens or that's you know experiences that are very unique to the being on the island. And whenever something that it's like a throw your hands up moment, you're just like, ah, whatever. Uh, we say TIG, this is Grenada. And, you know, there, there's plenty of times where, it, you know, if someone else that went, went to SGU, you know, spent time on the island and you would say, you know, oh, do you remember doing X, Y, Z? You remember doing this on the beach or, you know, going to the grocery store and there's no milk for a whole week. And you just say TIG and they'll be, they'll know exactly what you mean. That, that's a common one. So you don't even have to know that person, but you know that they went to one of the same Caribbean schools and you would say that, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's essentially a, a brother sisterhood, you know, where you're just like, if you say TIG to someone or you, you finish a story with TIG, they're going to be like, oh yeah, I know that. I know I've been there. Yeah, oh, for sure. Cool. For sure. Um, the only other thing I can think of at this moment is, you know, I know we've talked about it a hundred times within our own family is uh, you know that we give each other lots of nicknames i i don't know who has the most amongst all of us not me no shayla shayla she only has one you and spruha probably yeah probably probably spruha and i because we, we were in, we got the immediate trickle down effect from kosha yeah there's no tri- there's no trickle up nicknames which is why shayla she doesn't have many you <laughs> right. know a waterfall only flows downward not up so <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny, just the number of nicknames. It's so foreign to my wife where she's just like, why are you calling each other these random names? I'm just like, if you grew up with us, you, it, you wouldn't even bat an eye. Um, you know, Spruha and I call each other Dupe and Bebo and Pippo and all these weird names where you're just like, what does that, what does that even mean? And, you know, to which I say, it means what it means that a dupe is a dupe. I don't know what else to say. Like it, either, you know, or you don't. Kosha and I are not particularly part of that per- bit, the dupe and the yes. Bebo bit. Right. Yeah. And yeah. we know what's going on, but we don't know what's going on. Like you could be like, <laughs> especially in the text thread, you know, Spurhoff would be like, well, that's what a dupe does. And we're like, okay, I don't, I know that's supposed to be some sort of like, like elbow check. But but the, but the specific, like, what does it mean yeah. is locked on us in a way that I, I think only you and she, why would you call someone a pit bull instead of a bee? I don't know. Right. <laughs> That's what I was going to say is that Triu has said something to the order of like, well, that's what a dupe would do. And then she has responded with, 
at least I'm not a pippo face. <laughs> and that's like they're they're going after each other. I know, but make it's, it's, it's a it's a val- it's a valid statement and also an equally <laughs> valid response. That's all I'll say about it. And the point here is that there are even family little subfamilies within families, right? That the four <laughs> yeah. of us are very very close. And this is something that Kosha and I learned that's about so- on this family trip, and we're like, what? is happen why did they this is a language that we don't even understand we yeah. get where it's going but i think the the heart piece of it we don't understand yeah that's a good point is that there there is sub like even within a very tight family you could sit there and explain it to us but like if you're if you're not in it you're not in it you will always be outside One of the things that we often find is that when you think you know someone, you don't know someone, right? We talked to Dawn just a couple days ago and I knew a lot of her story, but I didn't know. Um, and this has been just an example of like, we, you know, we grew up with you. You're our brother. We, you know, it's the whole, however long you've been alive is however long we've known you. And yet we don't know you. This is what we talked about with Dawn, which is, this is not a conversation in the way that most conversations are, which means we get, we get to learn and hear so much more about what your life was like or what you have learned from your experiences in medicine and, you know, and being a guy in the world. Yeah. I love that we learned so much about your experience in this thing. What was I doing when my brother was going through his experience? I had no idea. And I think that, that that's been one of the loveliest parts of the podcast is um is just getting to know these people in such a you know you have depth and breath and and just having these like deep conversations be like oh my god i understand i think i understand you a little bit more Mm -hmm. you know we had a shared experience living in that town um the small rural conservative you know 99 percent you know white christian town and it was just a completely different experience than, than, you know, where I am now in my life. And there's only so many people that will understand it. And obviously, you know, you, you are two of them, uh, Shayla, she and Kosha, you know, it's, it's our way to connect is, you know, you connect through your lens, you know, you can't, you can't look at the world completely objectively. So you have to look at it subjectively through and connect in the way you can. Yeah. Yeah, look through each other's glasses every once in a while. It's been awesome talking to you, Trey. And I know we talk a lot, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Like this is this is the focus. Like Kosha was saying, the focus conversation has been really, really great, and to learn about you know parts of your life that I didn't know. We love you, and there's sometimes that I think you're a dummy, and I can't believe that you're a doctor. Even now, because you're my brother. Even now. <laughs> no, I mean like right now. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. In the <laughs> but truthfully, like your patients are very lucky to have you and um it's on record that i said that so can't take it back now yeah i don't think you can take this podcast to your boss and be like i need a raise listen to what my sister says (laughs) but like she said it it's out there but i can't take it back so um thank you for being here we love you very much love you guys too and i'm very happy to do it talk to you soon thank you talk to you later trey bye bye definitely bye